So I had this whole episode written and ready to go about all the aspects of social media and how it can be harmful or helpful. I feel like it's been in the news so much these days, and it's a really important topic. Uh, I threw that episode out. It felt kind of dated and just sort of blah. Also, I wanted to focus on a few things about social media that really pulled me in. With all this political division and breaking apart of social networks, including family and friends, I wanted to know why. What causes these things? You see, we're not having conversations anymore. And if we do, we have rules about bringing up politics. I have no idea why this seems to be happening now more than ever. Sure, some families and friends groups have always had those rules in, and for good measure. But today, it seems like it's gotten a lot worse. The range of undiscussable topics is much broader, and the implications seem to be much more important almost life or death in some cases. I have a sneaking suspicion that social media is playing a huge part in that. I had an interview about one very principal part of that equation. This episode, social media and the great divide. We talked to someone who knows a thing or two about social networks and how they work. very intelligent woman over here is Audrey Kennedy. Hi guys. And this is Seriously? Really? And I want to start today by mentioning our own social media presence. We're on Facebook at SRSLY comma space really with a question mark. Uh, And I post all of our upcoming shows there in hopes that we get a comment or 50. So maybe we can mention them here on the show. So find us there and like us and leave a comment on our upcoming episodes. Also, get onto whatever you listen to us on and give us a thumbs up. And on iTunes, you can drop us a review as well. We're just starting out, so any suggestions are only going to help us improve content and possibly our entire show. Audrey, have you had any arguments recently with people about things? Uh, Have they actually been political arguments or just stuff that should be okay to discuss, but they become political? No, actually, I haven't. Most of my friends um, and I have similar socio-political perspectives, and so we don't really get into arguments or political arguments. I do have friends and family members that don't have the same political or social views, and I usually just steer clear of those topics. It feels a bit too volatile in today's climate. Yeah, I see this on social media a lot where someone will post something and if you disagree with any of it, you have an army of attackers calling you names. I think the worst part is that your political affiliation actually gets used against you like an insult. It happened to me recently on a George Takei post on Instagram. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but people just had to attack my beliefs. It's getting crazy out there. Yeah, people seem to be incapable of any amicable discourse. A conversation involving differing views without it spiraling into attacks and childish or ignorant antics. I'm not sure how we got to this place, but it's kind of concerning. At first, it seemed like it was a social media phenomenon, but I feel like I'm starting to see more and more examples of this behavior in real life. Have you seen the uh, Sarah Silverman show, I Heart America? I think I have seen at least a couple clips. If uh, anybody in the audience isn't familiar with that, I suggest you check it out. It's the comedian Sarah Silverman. She's amazing. 
if you're into dry, sarcastic humor. And she just basically goes to households in America and kind of just talks to them about herself and tries to bridge the gap. And I think it's pretty amazing in this day and age that somebody's actually trying to do that. I think it's even more amazing that that's such a huge uh, differing opinion from the norm Mm -hmm. these days, that someone's willing to try to bridge the gap between people. Mm -hmm. And she does it, if I remember correctly, in a really lighthearted but serious way. Like she, um, she doesn't make it so serious that it's uncomfortable to watch, but uses her, her humor and her comedy to um, relieve some of that tension, but everybody learns something out of um, the different families that she visits. Yeah, and I don't think she changes anybody's mind. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe the anonymity of the internet is actually changing people's behavior. And that's kind of what today's episode is on. It's on social media and uh, the gap in the country and why these things are happening. And I think the internet stuff is kind of bleeding into real life. I didn't see anything specifically on that topic as far as research goes. If anyone has an article on that, feel free to send it to me at podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, I don't know of specific articles, but I do know that the phenomenon is mentioned in Brene Brown's most recent book or her Netflix special. I can't remember which one. If you aren't familiar with Brene Brown, she's a social worker researcher whose books and TED Talks have become really popular lately. She speaks to her experience of being attacked on social media. So after a TED Talk that she did, um, she started to read some of the comments that were left by viewers. Uh, I think it was on YouTube. First rule of the internet, don't ever read the comments. (laughs) Right. And she mentioned that somebody gave her that advice, but she, she didn't listen. And so some of those comments were especially cruel. And some people didn't even have the courage to put their name next to their comments and statements. They kind of hid behind that anonymity like you you talked about. Um, So she really encouraged people out there who have an online presence, whether they have vlogs or blogs or they're on social media, whatever it is, to um, require their settings so that commenters, if they want to comment, have to put their name next to to what they say. And she's hoping that that would discourage some of the nasty behavior people might engage in under that guise of anonymity. Unfortunately, I think there are still plenty of people out there who don't mind saying quite nasty things, even with their name attached to it. Some people just want to be jerks, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes it feels as if there's entirely different social norms and rules uh, for the internet versus real life. Yeah, I think it makes it super easy So this divide isn't just on social media. It's really in all of our social networks, in real life, online. And I kind of wanted to figure out what's going on. I mean, I don't want to offend anyone with my political beliefs. I'd personally rather offend people the old-fashioned way way with my own personality. (laughs) Um, So we spoke to a researcher out of Germany who might have some knowledge about this and why it happens Keep in mind, these are just social theories and scientific concepts that have been thoroughly researched, and it's not a definitive answer as to why this gap is occurring. And I'll just go ahead and start the interview for you. Do you go by Dr. Karimi, or is that pronounced correct? I'm terrible at names. Yes, yes. Karimi is correct, yeah. And my first name is Fariba. I mean, you don't have to call me Dr. Okay. <laughs> so I mean English is not my first language. <laughs> okay. So if I if I make some mistakes uh, 
uh, feel free to correct me or just let me know <laughs> if I, I need to rephrase something, right? I try to keep a pretty open-minded audience, so I hope that they understand. <laughs> I think we're all pretty understanding in the community <laughs> here. Well, hi, Fariba. Thank you so much for joining um, us for our social media episode. I was really interested to read some of your articles that you authored and co-authored. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your areas of interest and expertise? Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. So my research area is, is known as computational social science, which is a very interdisciplinary research in the intersection of physics, mathematics, sociology, computer science, and statistics. Mm -hmm. Overall, in my research, I like to use uh, computational methods to address societal problems such as emergence of inequalities and biases in society. So what do you think, Audrey? I think she's super smart and has some great things to say. Yeah, definitely. I think her background is a pretty sweet story as well. It was really sweet to hear her talk about her mom and going back to school and where her um, interest in science came from. How did you get there, if you don't mind me asking? Where did you go to school? <laughs> so I, uh, I was born and raised in Iran uh, and... Um, uh, I, um, as a small child, I was always fascinated by studying mathematics and physics. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, my parents also played a huge role in that. Um, so my mother uh, decided to pursue her passion in psychology when uh, she already had four small children. So I remember as a teenager, I had to take care of my little sisters while my mother was going to university. And my my great uh, pleasure was when she was coming home with a with a book from Isaac Asimov related to stars or universe or galaxies, and uh, that uh, that's how I started uh, my interest in physics. And uh, I went to university and studied. I did my undergrad in physics. Um, uh, and what fascinates me in physics was was really to finding patterns in uh, in looking at uh, how, for example, when we look up to the sky and we can see all these stars and galaxies, uh, as a teenager, uh, I felt like uh, how tiny I am and my problems are and how big the universe is. So this is something uh, fascinates me about studying science and physics in particular. Uh, yeah. <laughs> amazing. That's amazing. I was a big Isaac Asimov fan, too. I, th <laughs> I think I fell in love with his book, Nemesis. Um, it was a great book. So, yeah, yeah. So what brought you to social network studies? Yeah. So, um, so as, I, as I said, my, uh, my passion was always to discover patterns in things. And I found that uh, network science is actually a very fascinating topic in that respect. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, what I, um, so um, the the idea is to how we can understand micro level behavior can can emerge and become macro level phenomenon. I think that is amazing, and uh, social networks are in particular very interesting for me because they are even more challenging and more unpredictable than non living systems. So I like to I like challenges and I like new. Um, 
basically facing these challenges for me was always a, a great pleasure. Um, and another reason is that social networks are something more tangible to me as a researcher. I can relate to and I can understand uh, some of these aspects that I study. So this is always uh, fascinates me. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what do you think the most interesting study you've done or worked on is? Do you have a favorite area or anything like that? Uh, so my most interesting works uh, are the research that I have been doing in the recent years on the impact of social networks um, formation, uh, uh, especially my homophily on visibility and ranking of minorities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember when I started my postdoc, uh, my mentor here, Markus Stromay, always challenges me, me to ask this question of how impactful my research is in the societal level. And that encouraged me to, to put focus on my research and try to really uh, focus on important questions. So I think that is, that is the, uh, the most interesting study that I have been doing the, in the past years. Yeah. Well, that was pretty good. Uh, what do you say we take a break right there? I think that's a good idea. We'll be right back. Seriously? Really? So there's a few pieces to this interview. Uh, homophily is kind of a new concept, but it's growing in use. Some people call it homophily. Um, and I've heard it a few places now, but it's not quite as common as it very well could be. I think it may be a new term for some people, but I think we have all had experience with it. The concept isn't entirely new. It's the idea of birds of a feather flock together. When I think of homophily, I think of middle school and high school. The jocks all hang out with the jocks and uh, the nerds all hang out with the nerds. The cool girls are all at their own lunch table and the band geeks and theater kids stick to their groups. The concern is when we move from talking about high school cliques to issues such as race, gender, and religious divides within our social networks. I'm really interested in the idea of homophily, which is actually what brought me to you. Um, mm -hmm. It seemed like a very interesting concept to me. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, homophily is the tendency to connect and interact with similar others. For example, mm -hmm. uh, studies have shown that uh, in at school, in schools in the United States, there is a high homophily uh, between kids of different racial backgrounds. For example, African American kids are uh, more likely to be friend only with other African-Americans and white kids only be friend with white kids. And this uh, homophily um, can, in a, in a, as a mechanism in micro level, can generate interesting micro level patterns in social networks. For example, it can generate segregation in the city level. Uh, in the city, we observe that in different districts, uh, there might be different uh, ethnic groups living and that is uh, actually this simple mechanism of homophily can generate uh, such patterns in the in the macro level uh, so yeah this is this is uh, where my interest is that's yeah. huge so homophily is one type of perception bias a uh, bias is often unconscious it's not necessarily a bad thing it's something we do as humans to speed up and create efficient cognitive processes 
We process things in these heuristics or these rules of thumb that we can file things into and make efficient decisions off of. It's how we have evolved. And in doing this, we're often victims of our own biases. Perception biases are biases we make as we perceive the world around us. We assume that people perceive us how we perceive ourselves or even that they perceive us objectively as we are, but that often is not the case. And these perception biases play a large role and can explain uh, some of the social phenomenon occurring in our society lately on and offline. So there's an actual research paper that kind of brought the doctor to our attention. And the actual research paper I read gave an example of the last presidential election here in the United States. The Democrats were in this filter bubble and getting so much fed to them by social media and their social networks about how well their candidate was doing, that there was a huge disappointment when their candidate lost. I think I can definitely identify with that. I know I was in shock. In hindsight, it feels kind of naive of me, but I honestly didn't see how the outcome that we had was feasible. I think I was in my own filter bubble. Everyone that I communicated with, the media and social media that it consumed, it all seemed to support an entirely different outcome. So the majority illusion basically means that a small group can be overrepresented or overreported on, and the majority will be flooded with information about this group, misrepresenting how large the group actually is. The example in the article is that a majority of Europeans often believe that the Muslim population in their countries is much greater than it actually is, probably caused by widespread media coverage of terrorism activity and Islamic groups in Europe. I'm going to go ahead and uh, cite the article, and you'll be able to link to it from the from this episode. Um, so I was also interested in this idea of the filter bubble and the majority illusion, which was mm-hmm. one of your big articles. Um, can mm-hmm. you tell us how those things apply to social media and social networks? Yeah. So the ideas of filter bubble and majority illusion are have been around for a couple of years now. And um, we decided to to take a different approach to look at this problem. Uh, and we, we realized that actually with the network theory, we can explain these two seemingly opposing phenomenon in one uh, general uh, framework. So in social psychology, filter bubble and majority illusion, also known as false consensus and false uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And they describe two different seemingly opposing phenomena. Filter bubble is when we are surrounded by people of, of sim, uh, similar to us, therefore, uh, certain opinion or ideas seems we, we tend to overestimate certain opinions or ideas in the society. Whereas in majority illusion idea, the, the thing is that uh, we dis, we try to overestimate the opinion of a min, minority of people, and that generates this illusion that those minorities are actually majorities, which is not true. So we. Uh, from the framework of social network analysis, we found out that just related to how we are connected to others, uh, uh, we could be in both sides of filter bubble or in the majority illusion. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to, to kind of get this idea of relevance decay out there too. And I think it's not it's not part of the article, but I think it contributes 
because I think that media and influencers have a need to stay relevant. So they keep pumping out articles in order to stay relevant. They don't want to fade out. Then the other perception biases kind of kick in from there. And so I asked the doctor about relevance decay. How do these uh, ideas differ or interact with the idea um, of relevance decay? How do they work with that? I mean, evolutionary speaking, we have a limited capacity to remember and store uh, social relations and we have a limited memory. So that means that more recent events and recent interactions have more cognitive uh, importance for us compared to old events. And this is, you might have heard of, of uh, Dunbar number, uh, which, uh, which says that uh, in every point in time, uh, we are uh, capable of storing and understanding around 150 social relations. Uh, so this relevant decay, of course, makes, it, ma makes uh, the events and how we perceive the world uh, dependent on the time that we are looking at it, yeah. Um, can you speak to or tell me your thoughts on why some ideas seem to persist over others on these social media and social networks? Mm -hmm. uh, so according to some research, uh, for an idea to, to be attractive and stick in mind, it should be simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional, and have a good story. Mm -hmm. So, and from the network perspective, that is my uh, expertise, um, um, influential people have, have a huge role uh, in terms of propagating and spreading ideas. Uh, so a small nudge from influential people is enough uh, for an idea or a thought to uh, spread through millions of people in a matter of minutes. So Dr. Karimi mentions the Dunbar number, and if you're interested, you should check it out. The number was first proposed in the 90s, and it suggests that there's a limit to the number of people we can maintain relationships with. The number is related to the size of the neocortex. My neocortex must be small because I feel like an introvert most days. Yes. So without any further interruption, I'm just going to go ahead and play the rest of the interview. This is something in sociology is known as invisibility syndrome. Uh, that was a term coined by a sociologist Franklin in, in the United States. What he means is that the, in this case, minorities feel ignored and overlooked by the wider public. And there are a few societal consequences of that, which is super important to understand. So if minorities feel invisible, they can either become silent, so they do not voice uh, they they don't speak up mm -hmm. or they can leave the community and maybe this is something we see in academia academia and stem fields where women and people of color basically leave leave the community or in the extreme case minorities can become violent towards the majority group because they basically do not have to conform to the norm of the majority group so in general it's very important to understand and realize what challenges minorities face to survive and thrive in a community uh, in order for us to, to have a better and unbiased uh, society. Yeah, and I think we definitely need uh, women and minorities in our, uh, in our science fields. Um, it's mm -hmm. hugely important, and it's been a huge boon to the whole scientific community to have those growth opportunities. 
Do you think right. regulation in the social media environment can help us get through some of these issues? There's a lot of talk right now um, about Facebook uh, redoing a lot of their their legalities, and there's a lot of uh, like YouTube's taking down a bunch of videos right now. Mm-hmm. Do you think that regulation is going to help us at all? Uh, yes, I think so. I think uh, we should not underestimate the impact of uh, social media on people's perception uh, in everyday life and uh, and how it can impact millions millions of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do understand it's a very um, controversial topic to talk about, and as scientists, we need to be neutral about this, and we need to yeah. just um, study this without taking any side. Uh, but uh, I personally think that just for one thing, for the next generations, we need role models and uh, we need to make sure that our sons and daughters have people to look up to, to, to get inspired and to feel that they can achieve their goal, whatever they want to achieve. So um, for that reason, we need to make sure that we have a diverse society um, and we have di- diversity in opinions in, uh, in the uh, there are also uh, research on team structure and team performance that are showing that diversity is super important in achieving novelty and um, performance in in uh, academia and industry. That means that for many of these problems to be solved, we actually need diverse group of people in academia and tech companies that can actually realize what are the problems so that they can offer proper solutions to tackle these problems that's huge that's amazing well um i want to thank you for your time and work i think what you do is amazing and i think science in general proliferating is an amazing thing too thank you for having me (laughs) thank you and i i glanced over your 2015 article um about simulating irrational behavior to present uh prevent resource depletion Mm-hmm. Um, I've enjoyed reading over it. I think we're going to do a future future episode about global cooperation and a sustainable future. Can I keep your email and uh, get you back for that? Yes, of course. I would be glad to help. <laughs> That's some amazing research. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I think that covers a lot. I'm going to go ahead and link the research article in the show notes for anyone interested in statistical research. It's a pretty good read. I'll see if I can find the one she has on relevance decay as well. I think these are super important concepts to remember. I don't have any data on this, but I think anyone who is more absorbed in these perception biases can tend to get to a point where they dig in a little more and protect their beliefs, even if no one is attacking those beliefs. I think these are really huge ideas and can be broadly transformative to our culture if we try to be cognizant of what's going on around us both on and offline. Absolutely. A lot of what we're talking about and the social media phenomenon of people digging in more to protect their beliefs reminds me of cognitive dissonance. I'm sure this plays into the discord that's been observed more recently. Cognitive dissonance in the field of psychology is described as kind of a mental discomfort or psychological stress. It's usually experienced by a person who holds two or more contradictory beliefs or ideas And the discomfort is triggered by a situation where a person's beliefs clashes with new evidence perceived by the person. So when they're confronted with facts that contradict their beliefs or ideas, people will try to find a way to resolve that contradiction to reduce their discomfort. 
it can explain why people dig in so much and are quick to attack someone that presents some sort of information that conflicts with their thoughts or beliefs, even when they're not necessarily attacking the person in particular. It's also true that these sites like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, etc., all use AI to contribute to these issues, maybe not intentionally. That's artificial intelligence. I'm fairly sure everyone knows about the Cambridge analytical scandal where an, a data analytic company was using customer data mined from Facebook users and authorized by Facebook to do so um, to market political ideas and shape America's voting behavior. There's a big documentary on Netflix about it right now, actually. Yeah, it looks good. We haven't actually watched it, but it's definitely on our to-watch list. And now that that's happened, Facebook is suing a company called RankWave for what they say not complying with an investigation that they were eight, um, that they were abiding by Facebook's new policies in light of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Basically, uh, they found that RankWave... Uh, was not complying with an investigation to see that they were following these new uh, policies and guidelines that Facebook has put out since the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and now Facebook is suing them. Uh, We are sending a message to developers that Facebook is serious about enforcing our policies, including requiring developers to cooperate with us during an investigation. That's exactly what Facebook said in this lawsuit. Uh, so how secure are we really? And I reached out to the author of a Forbes article about the rank wave issue. He's a security and defense contractor. And he said, social media's honeymoon period is now truly over. The trade-off between privacy and convenience should now be well understood. Users are the product. They are the business model. Now that's out in the open. We can watch to see what impact that might have. Thus far, though, it seems the pull of social media is strong enough that most people don't care, end quote. And thank you, Zach Doffman, for that. I think it's a great quote. It's really quite interesting that something seemingly so important to people prior to social media, privacy, um, when I think back to earlier childhood and past TV shows and even family and friends, privacy was a much bigger issue. Um, back then. And so many people are so quickly willing to give it up or compromise it. It feels as if people's concern over privacy faded at a pretty equivalent rate at which the social media grew. So many people are willing to give up their privacy, their security, their even safety for an opportunity to play online. Something about social media is worth it to us. And so it seems to me that for now, these issues are going to persist until some kind of compromise can be reached between the laws governing social media and censorship. Uh, We'll have to be conscious of what we consume. But it's coming down the pipeline. Australia just passed a law holding social media companies responsible if they don't go after people posting depictions of violence or porn activities. And this is in the wake of the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you remember the horrific video that was posted about that. So maybe laws will start coming down and coming into play here in the U.S. as well in the light of our own social scandals, and maybe not. And I kind of wanted to close this out today by saying that social media is still in its infancy. 
And perhaps we just haven't yet evolved enough socially to be able to use social media in its fullest without the negative effects. Audrey, do you have anything else to add to that? Yeah. I just want to advocate for everyone taking a social media break. Go on a hiatus. It could be for a week, a month, or even a year or more. I think it really helps you evaluate the influence or effect that it may or may not have on your life and well-being. Helps you evaluate how you perceive your own reality and the value you place on certain experiences, relationships, and and people in your life. Okay. And uh, I do have one correction to make Uh, on our last episode. I mentioned that the APA is the American Psychological Association. It is actually the American Psychiatric Association that publishes and oversees the DSM. If you'd like to correct us gently, write into us at seriouslyreallypodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just want to reach out to us or have any show topics. Uh, If you want to join in on future episodes, we post all of our upcoming episodes on our own social media, on Facebook at Seriously Really. Uh, or on Instagram at Seriously Really Podcast. We'd really like to hear and discuss what you have to say. So we're available most places you get podcasting, including Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor.fm, and more. Please do us a huge solid. Give us a like and a review. And if you want to make sure you get all the new stuff as soon as it comes out, click that subscribe button. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Thanks, everyone.